It is good to be here again this morning. Between last week and this week, I did attend the, the BFA, the, the Baptist Fellowship Association conference in, conference in Fort Wayne, Indiana. There was about 200 people at the conference from a number of churches. They were spread from Kansas City to Atlanta, uh, as far north as Flint. I think we were almost the furthest north, but there were people from Flint there as well, so a little further north than us. Now, I did... Um, preach at the conference. I, I preach on, on one session. I appreciate the prayers. I know several of you told me you were praying for me. I appreciate that. On Facebook, I did post a link to that session, and you can listen to the sermon I gave. You could also follow that link, and, and the Baptist Fellowship Association has a YouTube channel, and all the sessions from the conference are on that, that channel, so you could listen to the entirety of the, the general sessions from the conference there. It is good, though, to be here this morning and to open the Word again. Let me ask you, how many of you would like to purchase more things than you have money for? Anybody ever have um, larger eyes than bank accounts? No, you don't know what that's about at all? The, the reality is none of us have enough money to buy everything we want. I, I know that none of you are financially wealthy, that all of you have to watch your bank account, that money is a liber limiting factor for all of us. That, that's our lives. We, we have to decide which desires we will spend our money on and, and which we will do without. We, we have to make decisions because if we don't, we will find ourselves in trouble. This morning, we'll see that there are some parallels between our financial lives and our church lives. We must make decisions in both. We're coming in our series of Paul's letter to the Colossians by picking up here in the middle of chapter 3, coming back to it. For some reason, the New American Standard and a few other English translations choose not to translate Paul's first word of the verse we're picking up in, verse 15. I assume it's for stylish reasons, stylistic reasons, um, but Paul actually begins our verse this morning with the word and. We don't have it in the New American Standard, and some English versions have it, some do not. But that little word and, that, that means that our verses today continue a theme or they're closely connected to the verses we looked at last week. There's a theme that's being developed as, as he goes through. But what is that theme, you might ask? I'm very glad you did. You're asking that, right, in your mind. What is the theme? What, what was I supposed to remember from last week? Because while I maybe had a conference in between, you had an entire week of work in between. So last week's theme is ancient history in your mind. Well, Let's see if we can figure it out. Chapter 1 made it clear that everything is about Christ. Our songs this morning are really reflecting a lot of the ideas of Colossians chapter 1 because everything is about Christ. Christ is central to everything. Christ is to be exalted over everything. Yet that proper position that Christ has in our universe is, is threatened by various false teachers. That's chapter 2. Those false teachers, they're the really tools of Satan. Satan has arranged for, for false teaching to continually dangle various kinds of distractions, one kind or another, in front of us. We're to resist those chapters and keep our gaze on Christ. That's the beginning of, of chapter 3. As we gaze upon Christ, we not only discover that, that he transforms us individually, 
But he also calls us to live out transformed lives in a community, corporately, the church. It's this corporate aspect, this communal aspect of living out transformed lives that Paul was beginning to express last week. He was developing how we are to live together. In verses 12 through 14 of chapter 3, Paul called us to unity. Unity within the body of Christ. Unity within the church. We are saved by Christ individually. Each one of us must know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. We cannot do that based on our parents. We cannot do that based on our church. We cannot do that based on our heritage or the country we live in. Anything like that, we must accept Christ individually. We must have salvation. If you do not have salvation, Jesus Christ, talk to me outside the service. I'd love to share with you how you can know Christ as your own personal Savior. Send me an email. There's my email address. Let me arrange time to sit down with you and talk with you. Paul is assuming at this point that we know Christ individually. That's how we are saved. We are saved by accepting Christ individually. We're transformed by Christ individually. We're, we must serve Christ individually. Yet, we are failing to do any of that as we ought if our individual Christianity does not meld itself into unity within the church. Christ calls us through salvation to display unity among his people, the church. Together, we joyfully magnify Jesus Christ. Yes, we do it individually, but our individuality is to be melded into a unity that collectively joyfully magnifies Jesus Christ to the world around us. That is the theme that we must have in mind as we turn to our verses this morning. As you saw on the beginning screen, we're, we're going to consider three verses this morning, Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. Those verses really wrap up the paragraph that, that we're beginning at, at verse 12. That, that means that, that we really should anticipate this morning unity to remain central. What we need to see this morning is unity is not just something that we are called to have. There is an expectation that, that we will do something to create it that we will make decisions that, that reflect that Christ is indeed the center of our lives and those decisions will create unity. The, the main point of our verses this morning is that unity in the church requires Christ-oriented decisions from God's people. Read that slowly. Let that sink in. Unity in the church requires christ oriented decisions from God's people. Christ is to be central above everything. He is to be exalted above everything. God's people need to bring that into the church, making decisions with Him in the center of everything for there to be unity. This morning our, our verses will list three Christ-oriented decisions that as God's people, you and I must make. Three decisions that we're called on to, to keep Christ in the center as we make these choices. The, these are not optional. These are requirements. These are not optional because these decisions produce unity in the church. 
Let's read our verses. We're picking up in Colossians chapter 3 at verse 15. Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Unity in the church requires Christ-oriented decisions from God's people. If you hear this morning, and you're a person of Christ, you're one of God's people, you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you must make Christ-oriented decisions. So must I. Specifically, the first decision that we see from verse 15, the first thing that we must decide is we must decide to pursue peaceful interactions. We must. Underline that idea. These are things we must do. We must decide to pursue peaceful interactions. It will not happen accidentally. We must decide. Paul writes, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is a command. It's something that we must do. It's not a suggestion. Paul's not giving us advice here. This is inspired instruction. Let the peace of Christ rule. The, the word that Paul uses for rule is a word that, that means the, the final arbiter, the, the, the controlling factor, the, the ultimate decision maker. The thing that determines the outcome. Think about that. Peace of Christ is expected to, to function. The, the peace of Christ in our hearts is expected to function as the controlling factor in our decisions. Imagine that you've just decided as a family that you're going to stop by and grab fast food for dinner tonight after a long soccer game. It's late evening. We're going to swing through a drive-thru and pick up fast food for the family. Brother immediately yells out, Yes, McDonald's! Sister yells out, No, Taco Bell! You know how the next 30 seconds will go. McDonald's! Taco Bell! McDonald's! Taco Bell! Of course, louder and louder, right? Finally, Mom says, We are going to stop at KFC. Where will the vehicle go? Why? The vehicle will go to KFC because mom has spoken. The controlling factor has decided. The vehicle is going where mom has said. That's the idea here. The peace of Christ is to function as the final arbiter in all of our decision making. It's what to, is to rule in our hearts. Remember, Paul explained back in chapter 1 that, that we have peace with God because Christ reconciled us through death. It's in Christ alone as we sang. Christ reconciled us through his death. Now we are at peace with God. Verse 22 makes that clear of chapter 1. Achieving peace was costly. It was costly for all of us. Christ did that. Yet that payment is to be the final factor in every decision we make for all of us. 
Christ died for all of us, and now that peace that he acquired for us should be what decides ultimately for all of us. Specifically, we are to let the peace of Christ determine every decision we make that involves interacting with others within the church. We can't pull this verse out of context. Remember, I said it's connected with the word and to what we looked at last week. In verse 14, if you look at, called us to put on the bond of unity through love for one another. And because we have that bond of unity, we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. The immediate way that we let the bond of unity through love for one another show itself is by intentionally Pursuing peaceful interactions with each other. Living out purposefully the peace that Christ has created. Paul frames our intentional decision to pursue peaceful interactions with each other with two thoughts in in the remainder of the verse. He gives us two ideas. First of all, he reminds us that unity is our calling. It's our calling. He says, indeed, you were called to how many bodies? One, one body. We, we cannot fulfill our calling if we're not pursuing peaceful interactions with one body. I know that the sad reality is that, that many of you have had experiences in your lives of dysfunctional families. Grew up in dysfunctional homes, had dysfunctional homes. Our, our world is broken by sin. And that brokenness has ruptured many homes. The, the one thing that a dysfunctional home does not offer is peaceful interactions. Yelling and screaming, sure, but pain, absolutely. But, but peace, no, no, that's not found in a dysfunctional home. There, there's no unity in a home because that dysfunctional home is not God's ideal home. Sin has ruptured it. While it's sad to see such dysfunction at home, it's not surprising. We do live in a a broken world. Sin has has broken everything in this world. But the church is not broken by sin. The church is where God is undoing the brokenness of sin. This is where God is recreating us. We are no longer broken. We are in the process of recreation displaying itself. He is in that recreation forming us into one body. That is who we are now. We are one body. We are functional saints rather than dysfunctional sinners. Unity is our calling. It's foundational to who we are recreated in Christ. Is it any surprise then, since we're called unity, that we're instructed to intentionally pursue peaceful interactions? Of course, Paul does not write that this is easy for us. After all, that the process of recreation is underway in each of us. It's not complete. There, there are plenty of times that we'll find ourselves offended by each other. Sometimes it will be inadvertent, accidental offenses. Other times it will be full-out, in-your-face offensing. Intentional offenses. 
Both will occur in the church because we're in the, the process of being recreated. Yet in, in either case, whether it's accidental or intentional, we must remember that unity is our calling. And then we must decide a conscious, in our hearts, wrestling with the flesh decision. We must decide to pursue peace rather than retaliation. We must decide to pursue peaceful interactions. Unity is our calling. Now look at what Paul adds to that reminder that, that we were called to one body. The last two words of verse 15, look at those words. You're called to one body. Be thankful. Thankful. Thankfulness is the expectation. Thankfulness is the expectation. We might overlook the toddler who receives a, a wonderful present and immediately goes to play with the present rather than turn and thank the giver, right? We, we understand a toddler is completely self-absorbed. They have to be taught and learn to give thanks for what they've received. So we overlook the toddler who behaves that way. Not so much with the teenager who reflects a similar self-absorption. By the time a person is a teenager, we expect that that person will understand they ought to express thanks for a great gift. Friends, we've received the most wonderful of all gifts. Grace from God through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The most wonderful gift imaginable. We've experienced peace with God by God's grace. We're called unity by God's grace. We're being transformed by God's grace. We're united with each other by God's grace. We have experienced the overflowing of God's grace in our lives. How can we find ourselves be anything other than grateful? Yet our gratefulness needs to find expression. We, we do not have the excuse of the self-absorbed toddler to fail to give thankfulness to God for all he has done for us. We're told, be thankful. The implication is that our thankfulness will, will display itself through our peaceful interactions with each other who have experienced the, the same grace that we have. We will be thankful that we can have peace with the people sitting in this room, that we can pursue it, this is God's gift to us. Unity in the church requires Christ-oriented decisions from God's people. We must decide to pursue peaceful interactions. That is the first decision that will generate unity. Re remember, unity is our calling. Thankfulness is the expectation. In verse 16, we have a, a second decision that's expected of us, a second command that, that Paul gives us. We must decide to pursue word-governed interactions. Not just peaceful interactions, but word-governed interactions. Of course, there's a connection between the two, isn't there? Word-governed leads to peace. Paul says here in verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. 
That's how the verse starts, isn't it? Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Do you know this is the only time in the entire New Testament you will find the, the phrase, the word of Christ? Usually it's the word of God. It's a rather unusual phrase when he uses it this one time. But it's clear what Paul means by that is the teachings of Christ. Christ is central to everything. Christ's teaching then needs to dwell within us richly. Christ himself gave authority to all of Scripture, so really the word of Christ is the Bible. Still, this unusual phrase reminds us that the reason that the word can dwell within us, in other words, the reason that the word can change who we are and how we think is because of Christ. 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 Again, Christ is central to everything. As Paul goes on in the verse, Christ is not simply placed in the center of our lives. He is central to the body. The, the entire community of saints centers upon Christ. Specifically, his word is placed at the center of the community. His word is to govern our interactions as a church. That the you of verse 16 is not each of us individually. This is a, a plural you. This is a you all, the, the church. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you collectively. When we interact with each other, it must be Christ's word that's governing us. So how does Christ's word govern our interactions? Well, Paul shows us that first, co-edification is our responsibility. Co-edification is our responsibility. I'll explain what that means as we go here. Verse 16 is a verse that, that often we consider independently. We, we just pluck it out of the context and, and use it. Often we, we use it to stress the importance of music in our worship service. Yet, yet Paul is not specifically focused on worship. Yes, worship is a large part of what we do as we gather, but Paul is dealing with our engagement with each other, our interactions with one another, of which worship is only a portion of that. He assumes that we will gather regularly as Christ's body. And when we do, there are three interactive things that we should do. Teaching, admonishing, and singing. Three things. Teaching is the positive side of instruction in the truth. That word of Christ that's to dwell richly within us. We are to be taught that. We teach that. Admonishing is the negative side, is the correcting or the warning with that same truth. And then singing is the extolling of this truth. All three of these focus on the word of Christ. In the center of the three items, as Paul lists out the teaching, the admonishing, the singing, in the very center he adds two little words, one another. All three of these things that, that we do are with each other. We are not simply givers or receivers of any of these three. We are givers and receivers of teaching and admonishing and singing. Let me be blunt. Here is where our American culture has influenced us far more than we ought to allow it to influence us. Probably even more than we realize 
our American culture has influenced us. Our American culture is a consumeristic culture. That, that means that, that we are consumers. We, we evaluate the, the products that are out there and, and decide what appeals to us. I do this when I walk into a store. My, my wife's a little different than me. I mean, she does it too, but her, the approach is different. I evaluate as a consumer. I walk in the store, make a quick lap, and if nothing grabs my attention, I'm ready to leave. She wants to make sure she hasn't missed anything in that lap. But we're doing the same thing. We're, we're consumers. We're looking for products that appeal to us. Too often we approach church the same way. The same idea, the same mindset. We, we look at what church has to offer us. What Sunday school classes are offered. If there's something I'm interested in, well, then I will attend. What songs are being sung? If the music appeals to me, then I will attend. We evaluate our attendance and our participation by, by what we get out of the experience. That is wrong thinking. That is absolutely wrong. It's upside down to what Paul is telling us here. Church is about co-edification, building each other up. Frankly, our duty part in church is to give, not receive. We give, we don't receive. That's why we come, is to give, not receive. Yes, as everybody gives, we will receive. So there is the one another aspect, but we only control the giving side. Yet, because we're American consumers, we think, no, we control the receiving side. Wrong. We come to give. We are to build one another up. We are not to evaluate what is offered for our benefit. We decide to assemble with the body so that we can give to one another. We are to assemble with the body of Christ looking and anticipating that we might well have the opportunity to teach or to admonish one of our brothers or sisters with the word of Christ. We, we come knowing that, that we can sing the word of Christ for the benefit of our brothers and sisters. Now, my personal job as the pastor is to equip you to do the teaching and the admonishing and the singing. My job is to equip you. But co-edification is our collective responsibility. Building each other up is what edification means. Building us up to be more like Christ. That is not my job. That is our job. That's why we gather. Yet to fulfill this responsibility, it requires a decision. We must decide that we will gather so that we can teach and admonish and sing. We must put ourselves out there to do it. We must decide that the Word will govern our interactions with each other. Now look carefully at the end of the verse. Not only are we to have Word-governed interactions, the end of verse says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Again, thankfulness is an expectation. It's an expectation. Teaching and admonishing and singing are not things to bear as hardships. This is not duty that we have to bear up under and, and, and carry ourselves through regardless of how deep it is and hard it is and painful it is. 
No, these, these are joy-filled privileges that God gives us. We can teach and admonish and sing to one another. These are privileges. We can do these things with thankfulness that, that Christ has given us his word. We can rejoice that, that his word does indeed dwell richly within us because we have his spirit within us. It enables us to serve one another. Of course, is, if Christ's word is richly dwelling with us, if we are expressing the glorious life-filled truth through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with our lips, then, then the expectation is that we will have thankfulness with our hearts, within our hearts. We will not be hypocrites mouthing these words that express the glory of Christ and the thanks that we have without feeling it in our hearts. Instead, we will have great joy in our hearts. Joy-filled thankfulness coming from our hearts that is coming out our lips as we sing of Christ's truth, as we speak of Christ's truth, as we encourage in Christ's truth. We will be filled with joy over Christ's truth. Thankfulness is the expectation. Unity in the church requires Christ-oriented decisions from God's people. That means we must, number two here, decide to pursue word-governed interactions. Co-edification is our responsibility. Thankfulness is the expectation. Verse 17, decision number three. We must decide to pursue Christ-centered lives. Pursue Christ-centered lives. He is to remain the center of our lives when we gather for worship and when we scatter to represent him in the world. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Far too often we try to convince ourselves that, that we can represent Christ out there in the world when we failed to reflect him properly here in the gathered church. Two observations from the last verse. First, consistency is our goal. Whatever you do, that's a comprehensive statement. Whatever, nothing's excluded. Whatever you do. Then, Paul, in case you miss the whatever part, he adds, in word or deed. Whatever you do is going to be either through word or deed. Again, comprehensive. All of our interaction with the world, every aspect of it, everything we say, everything we do, as we gather for worship, as we scatter for service, we are to do all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what does it mean to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? Does that mean that when I go through one of those stores and I've wandered, made my quick loop and found there's actually something here that, that interests me and I'm going to buy it, which again takes me about 3.2 more seconds and I'm done shopping. Does it mean that when I scan my credit card that I say, in the name of the Lord Jesus? Is that what Paul's saying here? When I take my mail out of the mailbox, I take it out and say, in the name of the Lord Jesus? If that always means when he says, whatever we do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus? Of course not. 
Of course that's not what Paul means. His final instruction here means that we are to act consistently throughout our lives in a manner that is consistent with the nature and character of our Lord. That how we live reflects His character. That's what the name means, His, his character, His nature. We are to live our lives in a way that we are reflective of Christ. Paul here is transitioning in this verse, as I've already hinted, from our behavior as we gather in the church to our behavior as we scatter as the church. You know, when you leave here this morning, you are still the church. We're not gathered for any longer, but you're still the church. So Paul's transitioning. How we live as we gather and how we scatter is to reflect Christ. Paul is about to begin to address a number of specific relationships that we have outside the gathered body. Relationships in which we are still, as the church, expected to reflect Christ. This verse serves as an umbrella to that idea. Still, this verse directly concludes his instruction to the gathered body. This is a final thought to the gathered body. That the New American Standard, again, does not translate the word and, but verse 17 in the original begins with and. It's connected to the prior verse. It is part of this thought that he's been developing, this theme. It completes his paragraph on unity within the church. The English breaks up to make Paul's very long run-on sentences more understandable in English. But we sometimes then lose the understanding that verse 17 completes what Paul's been developing from verse 12 onward. This theme of the united body of Christ. We are to pursue Christ-centered lives and we must begin that pursuit within the church. There must be consistent Christ-centered living in the church. As most of you know, I spent 18 years in the corporate world before entering full-time ministry. I know how ugly it can be out there in the corporate world. I know how ugly it can get living in the sin-filled world. At the same time, probably the thing that surprised me more than anything else when I transitioned from the secular world into the, the church world, ministry world, is that I found oftentimes more compassion and latitude in the secular world than I find in the church. I have had people assume my motives being selfish and that my mistakes are intentional more often in ministry than I did out in the secular world. I make plenty of mistakes. I readily admit that. But they're usually unintentional. And I'm not the only one that's had that experience. It didn't surprise me when I was serving in a secular world when I was pursuing a company that was after the almighty dollar, though, really, if I think about it, it doesn't surprise me that when I'm doing that, Satan never bothered me. Satan and, and his minions didn't bother because I was no threat to Satan's effort when I'm just working for this company that's chasing the almighty dollar. When I come in the ministry... I am directly in the bullseye of his attack. So I understand why there might be more challenge within the church. 
I understand why there might be more pressure. Satan might have more effort placed here within the church. So I might understand it, yet I can say that things should not be this way. In the church is where we should find the most grace given to one another. Where we should find the most latitude given and the most understanding. We should never find things harsher in the church than we find them in the secular world. As I said, sadly, my personal experience is not unique. Such ought not be. Our Christ-centered living must begin in the church. We should expect that this is a place where we find people doing everything in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Friends, it's time we all stop making excuses for our slips. Sin is a slip. We are living as we are not because we are declared by Christ to be righteous, holy, set apart unto God, right? We, that's who we are. So when we sin, we slip into that old life. But let's stop making excuses for it. No more, I'm tired, and my harsh words just slipped out. No more, I didn't really mean it. I was just frustrated. No, sin is sin. Let's call it what it is. Sin is sin. We need to admit it. We need to ask forgiveness for it and put it off. Righteousness and grace and mercy those are the expectations that we must always hold ourselves to when we gather as the people of Christ. After all, these are the things that we've received from Christ. These are the things that reflect the name of Christ. Consistency is our goal. Whatever we do in word or in deed, do in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing less consistency. We must decide to pursue Christ-centered lives. Consistency is our goal. Now look at the final words of verse 17. What do you think the final observation is again? Hmm? Uh, sorry, I'm still weaning myself off. One of the things about the, the conference I went to is a lot of the, the churches represented there had a much more interactive culture than we have. There was a lot of feedback during sermons. They, they engaged with the speaker. What do you think the last observation is? Thankfulness. Absolutely. Giving thanks through him. That's Jesus Christ. Giving thanks through him to God the Father. Thankfulness is the expectation. We cannot get away from the expectation of thankfulness. I love how one commentator put it. Listen to this. He wrote, Continual thanksgiving should be rendered to God, who has transformed our lives through the saving work of Jesus Christ, and has given ability and opportunity to live in a manner pleasing to him. Continual thanksgiving should be rendered to God. Do you realize what we've received from God through Jesus Christ? If not, go back and read chapter 1 18 times this afternoon. You need to grasp the things in chapter 1. Do you realize what we've received from God through Jesus Christ? Do you realize what he has done for us? Where is our joy? 
Where is the gratitude that, that demonstrates our joy and thankfulness? What possible reason do you have to grumble about your aches and pains? Yes, I know your body may hurt. I know you have aches and pains. Those aches and pains remind us that we are living in a sin-cursed world. Every ache and pain I have is a constant reminder that I am broken by sin. I deserve eternal damnation for my sin. Much more than an ache and a pain, but instead, Christ died for me. Aches and pains should generate thankfulness, not grumbling. Why are you complaining about how so-and-so wronged you? Whatever it is that, that so-and-so did, it is not even in the same ballpark as how you wrong God. Yet God sent his own son to die for you. The wrongs you experience should not generate complaints. They should generate thankfulness because they're reminders of how much heartfelt joy and thanksgiving we owe God. Thankfulness is the expectation. Unity in the church requires Christ-oriented decisions from God's people. We must decide to pursue Christ-centered lives. Consistency is our goal. Thankfulness is the expectation. Remember, unity. Unity in the church requires Christ-oriented decisions from God's people. We have decisions to make. We, we understand that. We do it all the time in our financial lives, making decisions. Well, we need to do the same thing in our church life. We must make decisions. We must make decisions, Christ-oriented decisions. We must make that so that we manage our unity much like we manage our finances, carefully, intentionally, decisively. Paul's listed three Christ-oriented decisions for us this morning. In verse 15, we must decide to pursue peaceful interactions. Peaceful interactions. Unity is our goal. Thankfulness is the expectation. Verse 16, number two, we must decide to pursue word-governed interactions. Co-edification is our responsibility. Thankfulness is our goal. Word-governed interactions. Verse 17, we must decide to pursue Christ-centered lives. Consistency is our goal. Thankfulness is the expectation. Unity in the church requires Christ-oriented decisions from God's people. Are you making Christ-oriented decisions that are producing unity in our church? Let's pray. Father, you have shown us in your word what you expect for us as your people. Father, I pray that your spirit would do a great work among us now. That your spirit would cast a bright light of illumination into each of our lives and bring this, the conviction that we need where we are failing to live as we ought, 
to make the decisions that we ought that are centered on Christ. Father, for each of us, that may be different. But we need your spirit to reveal and convict. Father, I pray that you would cause us to be a church that shows our unity in Christ in a glorious, fabulous fashion. That you would cause us to be men and women who are filled with thankfulness, showing the joy that we have in Christ as we gather and as we spread out among our city during the week. May we show how thankful we are for what we've received from Christ. May it reflect in how we interact with each other. May we have great unity. Unity for the cause of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.